I count like a, a, a friend of mine who's killed or a, a relative, not one, 15, 20. Those are like the numbers daily. And when you start thinking about your relationship with this, with this friend, you just realize that another one is killed and you have to pay attention to that. And then the other one, and you can never mourn on any of them. You don't have the time and the privilege for that. Some of them were actually not bad because some of them are actually humans who realize that they are interviewing a person who had just lost 21 members of his family, his father, his brothers, his sisters, his nieces and nephews. But some of them, they actually invited me to come to their show, not because they want, they care about me as a person or they care about Palestine or they care about neutrality or professionalism that they want to host people from different sides. They actually interviewed me because they want to embarrass me. Yesterday we saw images of a young Palestinian boy picking up the remains of somebody, lumps of flesh from the ground. Yani this is something that that uh, you shouldn't be able to see. This is something you should read about in, in grim novels. And it's happening in real time. It's broadcasted. And if the world is not transformed by this, then the world is doomed. Yani then there is no, absolutely there is no hope for humanity. We're here with three giants of Palestine for the launch of Palestine Deep Dive's new studio. On my left is Mohammed Al-Kurd, then we've got Hala Hanina and Ahmed Al-Nuk. Hala, can we start with you? If you could just give us a little description of, of what life was like in Gaza before um, October 7th and when you came to the UK. Thank you so much. Um, Gaza, like the first time I saw Gaza and was in 2005, I was going there to attend my cousin's wedding with my family. And at that time, Israel started to dismantle their legal settlements from inside Gaza. And we were stuck there since that time. Uh, year after year, I started like uh, education. My family went through unemployment and all of that because of uh, the strict blockade Israel officially put on Gaza in 2007. And uh, there was like school, other stuff. However, in 2008, it was the first time I witnessed first aggression on Gaza. And it was, um, I wouldn't call it just a nightmare. It was literally the hell opened up in front of our eyes. And at that time, I was able like to see the, um, the ground shaking, the shattered bodies just thrown everywhere, smokes coming from the ground, hearing like very, very high uh, bombardments. And for like 27 days, things were just escalating. And then 2012, 2014, for 52 days, uh, so many massacres and everything is happening. And through that time, I was only told that we Palestinians were not good in narrating our story. And that's why the world is not standing with us. At that time, I was a dentist and, um, and while I was watching what's happening to us, I was at the same time able to see the people in Gaza thriving and trying their best to resist this continuous aggression over them, to eradicate them, to kill them and eradicate Palestine and in like smaller version of it, Gaza. So each time aggression ended, people started with rebuilding roads 
and rebuilding hospitals, uh, expanding departments, and having like some um, rehabilitation places on beaches, resorts, uh, many restaurants, many beautiful places, and cafes where people can go and spend a lovely time and um, rehabilitate and reduce the stress of the aggression and the stuff we have witnessed together. So each time we were like faced with with violence, aggression, and brutality by the Israeli occupation, Palestinians in Gaza, at least, were resisting and, and bringing more beauty to Gaza. And more and more aggressions were happening each time. Uh, and each time, like of those six aggressions that happened before, um, uh, like 2023 October, because there was one in May 2023, um, I was with my family. And I always wanted to be in any aggression with my family. However, when I came to the UK at the beginning of October uh, to pursue my third year of PhD here, when this aggression started, I was very afraid. I wanted to go back immediately to my family and stay with them. However, I couldn't because Israel bombarded the, the accesses and they, could, they didn't allow any, anyone to go back. And at the same time, it wasn't aggression. It was a genocide. I've seen the worst of any human being have seen, and all people in Palestine and Gaza have seen the same. However, this genocide was beyond our imagination. And can you just talk a little bit about the Great March of Return, uh, which happened in 2018? <clears throat> I think that was quite an important formative moment in your development, your political awareness, right? Um, through the years, I remember since I was young and all my generation, we have studied the human rights as obligatory subject in the school, first grade until sixth grade. And in that sense, we understood the human rights, international law, uh, we understood uh, our resolutions uh, that was taken by, uh, by us from the UN uh, for many things. And in 2018, people wanted to test uh, the international community ability to actually grant us our rights if we claimed them. And people wanted to protest peacefully on the fence between um, uh, the people and their blockade in Gaza Strip and the Israeli colony, uh, the 1948 occupied areas. And um, like how it was advertised, and it was very much um, um, happy of it, is that people would just stand there by the fence, will build a um, temporary fence just to portray the 1948 Nakba tent that was built after the Nakba, uh, or put after the Nakba for people to stay in, and would have like embroidery, would have traditional food, traditional dances, dabka, weddings and sports and all of that. So I took my family and went there. For us, it, it served two things. First thing was to show the international community that we Palestinians know international law and we can, as they told us, we can demand our rights in that way, according to the international law, by calling for the right of return 194 resolution. Second thing was to raise awareness um, using our traditional food, our traditional um, heritage, and all of those stuff, just to remind the world about the atrocities that we've, we've faced and seen in our lives. However, uh, going there, and before going actually, Israel, one week before, I promised that this peacefully beautiful demonstration that Palestinians were advertising for will be 
faced by 100 snipers standing at the other side of the fence from the Israeli side, and they will shoot Palestinians. From my position, uh, I didn't believe that. I was just there, there using that to threaten us because they will never be able to do because international community, international journalists were inside Gaza to film what's happening, and also international organizations were participating in this um, public protests. However, when I went there, um, I was uh, with my family and we ate some stuff, we sit in some places, and I hold, I was having a book with me, how to reconstruct a land, um, believing that the right of return will be claimed and we will have the right to go back to our villages and cities. And when we were like just sitting and talking and discussion, discuss, uh, discussing those things, Israeli snipers started to shoot us with live ammunition and machine guns and also tear, tear gas and all of that, uh, but not just the throne, it was like literally targeting people. And while uh, like for, for days, it, 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 it was repeated for many times. And at the beginning I was like, it's fine. The international community didn't have the chance to see it yet. That's why they haven't done anything. Uh, British people and, you know, Europeans and USA people, would, they are bureaucratic and they would need more time to start um, action. However, on the 14th of May, uh, when the US embassy was going to be re relocated to Jerusalem, um, I was also sitting, the same violations happened. I saw many people in front of me being targeted and, um, and killed while I was just sitting with them. And um, when, when Israeli, like, uh, machine started to shoot us and I saw the number of people who were just dreaming of having of having a free land free of illegal occupation being killed in front of me and I wasn't even able to just like grab them away from the scene um, I started to crawl because I didn't know what to do until I found like a heap of sand I hid behind it and then I had a call because my first degree is dentistry and I have training in paramedic uh, and first aid. So um, I had a call from Red Crescent Society Field Hospital and they told me, Hala, come immediately. We need you at the first uh, at the, uh, field hospital. We have hundreds and hundreds of people coming either already killed or they're bleeding and we need people to stabilize them. So I, I just looked at the scene around me and I said, I will never believe in international law. It let us down for 75 years. And at that day, it let us down when we tried international recognized way, calling for international recognized resolution. And we were killed for only calling for that. And since that time, I stopped believing in international community. Um, Ahmed, you were involved with the Great March of Return. Is it, as a journalist, you covered it. Um, <clears throat> did you have a similar did it have a similar effect on you, seeing your uh, your fellow Palestinians go out and try and enforce international law and get met with uh, lethal force, just dozens of people killed? What, what effect did it have on you? You know, as Hala was speaking about the March of Return, I, I relived the experience again. I remembered myself every Friday 
for two years going to the March of Return and I could smell the tear gas I, I used to inhale when I was at the March of Return. If you talk about the March of Return, it's actually, a, how, how could I say it? A spectacular moment. You could see life and death at the same time, mixed at the same time. At the beginning of the March of Return, at the beginning of the camps, you would see festivals, weddings, cultural events, book clubs, people celebrating life, all of life. And then if you go uh, a bit further into the fence, you will see smoke, people getting killed, people getting shot. And if you go further, you will see Israeli snipers fortified uh, be behind hills of land, uh, of, uh, of, of sand and tanks. And they were shooting at the Palestinian people. And they were shooting not because the Palestinian people were uh, posing any, uh, any danger to them. They were shooting them for fun. And this is not actually my word. It's the words of some Israeli soldiers who were interviewed for Haaretz. One of them said, I shot 51 knees at one day. And they were celebrating shooting Palestinian knees. And you see, they shoot the knees. They don't shoot the, the legs or the limbs or any other place. They don't use rubber bullets, for example. They use butterfly bullets in which explodes uh, in, the, in the Palestinian bodies, uh, in the Palestinian people bodies. So these Israelis were shooting for amusement. They were shooting the Palestinians as if we were duck. And I still remember hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of Palestinians protesting, calling for two things. One, the, uh, the appliance of the international law, the UN Resolution 194, in which guarantees the Palestinians the right of return and also breaking the siege on the Gaza, which is a collective punishment, which is a grave violation of the international law. So these were the demands of the Palestinians. Let's remember that 70% of the Palestinian people who live in Gaza are refugees, they're not from Gaza. They come from towns and villages and cities that are now in Israel. And they came out in tens of thousands demanding their legitimate right of breaking the siege, of returning to their homes and lands. And they were shot at, they were killed, 300 people were killed. More than 300 people were amputated after that 10,000 Palestinians were were shot and injured at the march of return and then that was actually my first encounter with the with the bias of the social media I was a journalist I was there I was covering the news and I saw events in front of my eyes I've seen someone who got shot in the eye who was far away from the fence I was here guys many times more than more times I could remember two of my friends who were journalists were killed while they're covering the events of the March of Return. I've seen a kid who's only 11 years old, who was more than 300 meters away from the fence. He was shot in the head and he was killed instantly. He did not pose any threat to the Israeli soldiers. None of the Palestinians posed any threat to the Israeli soldiers. But the Israelis, they always want to remind the Palestinians that, that they are not safe. They want to remind the Palestinians that they kill at will whenever they desire, when it, whenever they want. And this is the, the impression we've got that we can be killed and it's okay. The media doesn't care about us. The Western media doesn't care about us. The international law is only applied on the enemies of these states, of the foreign countries, and it's never applied on the friends of, of, of the British or the American friends. This is the impression I got from the international law. I totally agree with Hala. She said that she doesn't care. She doesn't believe in the international law. And I believe in the international law, but I don't I don't believe that it can be applied nowadays because the superpowers, the uh, the biggest governments, the biggest states, 
they don't actually care about the the uh, the uh, uh, the applying of the international law they only care about the international law when it suits them and that's actually a grave violation of the international law international law should be applied on everyone equally do you think that um the impact Hala was saying it had on her and it sounds like it had on you that it was just the moment when you realized we can't rely on the implementation of international law because they they don't it, it, it that's not how it works uh, it doesn't work for palestinians um they don't apply it do you think that was a um that was a, f- a general feeling across the whole of gaza after that and that the lesson that was sending to palestinians is you had you you if you protest peacefully unarmed and try and and in celebration of life we will meet you with lethal force you'll be killed um do you think that there, there was that that was the start of the road to october 7th because people were uh, that was the message that palestinians were getting you ha- you can't resist in any kind of peaceful way you can't Im- impose uh international law and people must have got desperate is that a fair is that a fair way of putting it or not i think the palestinian people collectively lost uh lost hope in the international law a long time ago. It didn't start when uh, 2018, when the March of Return started. But I think the Palestinians started the March of Return because it was a desperate measure. I, I still remember the founder of the March of Return, Ahmed Abutema, when he said, when he wanted to describe the March of Return, he said, this is a knock on the wall, uh, in reference to Rijal Fisham, Sunni and the Sun. The Palestinian people did not have any choice to do. No matter what we did, no matter how hard we try as Palestinians to resist the occupation, any means possible, we were not successful. And then eventually we said, okay, we will demand something that is agreed upon by the international community, the the right of return and the breaking, the illegal punishment, the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. And I, I, I still believe that the Palestinians went to the March of Return, not because they they know that the international law will be served eventually but because we did not have any hope in anything else and uh, going to the protest week after week after week for two weeks for two years was just a, a desperate measure we we want to do anything we want to vent we want to vent our emotions and those people who attended the march of return most of them are young people who were about my age i was only 25 years old back then and if you look at these people who are 20 20 until 30 and younger these people have lived the occupation all their life they have lived the siege all of their life 99% maybe of them never left Gaza in their life and they were these people were desperate they want to vent their emotions they want to go in a protest week after week after week because they did not have anything else to do but to protest and I've met with many many Palestinians who were shot once and twice and three times at the March of Return and they get shot they get treated and then they return to the March of Return and I would ask them why would you do such a thing why would you go knowing that you might be killed or shot and they say, what else can we do? We need to do something. We need to vent our emotions. We need to go back to our homes and lands and occupy Palestine. Um, Mohammed, what, like, it's interesting to me as obviously the, one of Israel's main goals is to separate the Palestinians from the West Bank or East Jerusalem. And um, they, they wanna separate the Palestinians uh, uh, there with the Palestinians in Gaza. What, 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 what emotions uh, run through your mind when you listen to this kind of testimony? And secondly, 
Um, what's your take on what what these guys are saying about international law in Palestine? Is is it just futile holding out any hope for for international law or these institutions that we're told will enforce it in the case of Palestine? Yani Gaza is only maybe an hour away from my house in in Jerusalem, but I always say that it feels like a faraway planet because the the kind of violence that they are subjected to there is quite different from the kind of violence we are subjected to very different from the kind of violence people in the West Bank are subjected to. And, you know, this this level of spectacular violence, I believe, operates on two folds. One is to intimidate the Palestinian population into submission, but also it is, it alleviates the Israeli public. I think the Israeli public seeks, the, you, you are able as an Israeli individual to receive your sense of security from the anguish and pain of Palestinians. So when I say the word spectacular, it is not in vain. These kinds of things are meant to be performed and they're meant to be broadcasted. And this is the kind of, uh, this is, you know, the contradiction here, because on one hand, you think as a Palestinian, there is there is no way they can be doing this. There is no way they can be shooting people with butterfly bullets in broad daylight broadcasted on television screens but at the same time you recognize that this is an army this is a regime this is a country this is an ideology that has been rewarded with impunity for 75 years and so they do this and they ensure that it's broadcasted so that the population on the inside continues to feel safety because we as palestinians represent the existential threat of the jewish state hence why they keep us in cages hence why they keep us behind behind walls and i i certainly agree with them with regards to the international community, even more so now than before. I think there is, there are certain things um, that has, there are certain milestones in, in one's life that kind of mark this feeling, maybe the, not only policies, but certain events, maybe the the burning of Al-Aqsa Mosque or like Al-Durra or like more recently, like the taking over of, uh, of our houses in Jerusalem, or like the killing of Shirin Abu Aqleh, or the past 100 days in the Gaza Strip, you are reminded time and time again that there is not a threshold that they can't cross. There is, there, the goalposts keep changing. They can do anything, and they continue to change the, the rules of the game. And it's, again, again, because they have been met with impunity, they have been met with an exceptional treatment that has allowed them to perpetuate crimes. And they keep testing the waters. They keep saying what more they can do. And this is why they have been able to bomb hospitals. This is why they have been able to bomb medical convoys. They have been able to, buy, to bomb... Uh, border crossings, and this is why they have been able to say the egregious things they are saying um, out in the public, because there has never been, you know, an army so coddled, an army so protected by the world's powers. And I don't see, I don't know, I don't want to be cynical, particularly with the ICJ proceedings and everything that's happening and the people tirelessly working uh, to make this useless tool of international law have some use, so I don't want to be cynical, but I can't help but look at these institutions, like the courts, like the United Nations, as institutions that were built on, on top of our skeletons, um, that are fueled by our blood, that don't really have my best interests in mind. Uh, what's quite interesting about um, the latest um, 
uh, Israeli campaign, which is a genocide in Gaza, is that you talked about there's no red lines for the Israelis, and that's clear, right? That they, there's always somewhere they can go that's lower. <clears throat> but it's, what's being really revealed is that there's no red lines for the Western countries that are their sponsors. And that is incredible. I, I honestly don't can't think of something the Israelis would do that would make the US or Britain withdraw their support, which is a terrifying situation. And obviously, that, as you say, that's why they, 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 get, they do it, because they can get away with it. But do you feel that, that this moment, this genocide, which is, as Hala said, is a different order to what we've seen before, ha, ha, is changing or will change in, in the longer term, that, that undying loyal support from, from the West? Well, I think the allegiances of the people that live within the empire need to change, right? And I think in the past three months, I have been seeing overwhelming support for the Palestinian cause. Everywhere you go, you see a Palestinian flag on somebody's window, you see people wearing kafiyas in, in public transportation. But as beautiful as that symbolic support is, it must be translated into tangible action, into organization. It must be translated into an institutional shift, and we must oppose Zionism. This is the kind of elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. These things that are happening, these massacres, and you're right, you're right, there is not a massacre big enough that will make the White House withdraw its support. And in fact, White House spokesperson, uh, Biden spokespeople even said, literally, there are no red lines. Um, so what needs to happen is that people through their academic institutions, through their cultural institutions, through their businesses, through their unions, need to reject Zionism, need to establish a prerequisite of being anti-Zionist, because all of this is, you know, the, the child of Zionism. All that we're seeing is the offspring of Zionism. This is an, a racist ideology that is rooted in racial domination and exclusion and rooted in settler expansion. And this is exactly what's happening. Not only are they murdering double the amount of people that were murdered in Palestine between 1947 uh, uh, and 49, but they have also made it pretty clear that they want to occupy the Gaza Strip again. And until we are able to tangibly denounce Zionism, I don't think this popular support for Palestine is going to go anywhere. And again, I don't mean to be cynical, but... No, I, I actually agree as well. I think that's the red line that needs to be crossed and it, people have to be brave now. If you're not going to be brave now, you're never going to be brave. I think the other red line that people need to start talking about unashamedly is the role of the Israel lobby in the West, because that is why we have such uniform support, I believe for uh, the, what, what started as a European settler colony. Um, there's two arguments for why this, there's such loyalty of the West. One is that, the, that Israel is like an imperial outpost. And I think that was probably true up to maybe the 80s. Um, but if you look now, they, the, the empire owns Egypt, they got every Gulf state's under control, they've got bases everywhere, Bahrain, Saudi. They don't need this little this little thing anymore. I think the reason there's such undying, uh, there's such low support in Washington, London, Paris, Berlin is because of the power of the Israel lobby. And the reason it's got so much power is because people won't expose it or take it on because they, they think that they'll get accused of being anti-Semitic or, or it's a trope. Right. So until that, 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 that levy is breached and, we, and people are brave enough to start talking about the Israel lobby, they'll, they will continue to have the Israeli state will continue to have that kind of control over the, the Western powers. And I think it's quite interesting in the UK context, obviously we're in the UK now. Hala, you've 
been here for the whole three months of the genocide um, and you've been watching the political class in Britain, watching every day dozens of kids get killed, the most horrific images anyone could ever see. And yet you still had uh, the, a ceasefire vote not long into the genocide when I think maybe 10,000 people uh, had been killed. Uh, where um, the, the House of Commons voted against a, uh, a ceasefire. Can you just talk about how that felt as, a, as someone from Gaza? That ha, ha, what, kind of, what kind of emotions did that rouse, watching that, that debate and then that vote? Very hard. It was among the, the hardest times and feelings I had. First of all, to be at the UK at this time, where the UK actually votes for activation of a genocide on my people in Gaza. And since that time, and I always say it, each MP who voted for, like, abstained or rejected is actually responsible for the genocide until now. Until, like, the voting day on the 15th of November, Israel have just killed 11,000 or more than 11,000 Palestinians. Now they have killed more than 30,000 Palestinians. So more than 20,000 Palestinians are killed with the responsibility, direct responsibility, of UK officials who have made that happen and allowed it in their abstaining and rejection. Um, so I, I felt, I didn't feel like actually betrayed, although I felt it a little bit, because the UK have always been in that position, but I wished that their foreign policy uh, would have changed a little bit, but it didn't since 1917, they had the mandate on Palestine, and then they had gifted Palestine to the Zionist organization and helped um, Israeli colony to be built. And until, uh, and until now, they've never been ashamed of what they've done. And they're still empowering and sending weapons and giving all the support to Israel to commence and commit all the crimes they are committing. And at the same time, like looking at, um, I'm, not a I'm not a media person, I'm not a politician, uh, but I know a little bit about law. And I know in law, Israel is illegally occupying Palestine. So whatever Israel is doing now in Gaza and West Bank is illegal. However, when I listen to the politicians and the media personals, and they're saying that Israel have the right of self-defense, I'm shocked. Uh, like against whom? Against the people they are occupying illegally? This is insane. And I think we're living now in a, in a time where it's not about international law. It's not the leverage at this time. The leverage of those powerful, whatever they say, and the mass media saying, this is the law on the ground, unfortunately. And I've, I've able to see it in so many times, specifically at the genocide, and on that day, on the 15th of November, which is a day that should never be forgotten and should always be the shame on the British government and the House of Commons that allowed the genocide to be committed. Like, in the first place, it's, it's disappointing to have a petition over ending a genocide. Like, this is itself disgraceful. But then to vote against it, that was another level. I agree. I think there's uh, like uh, what, how I put it is there's no way back. There's nothing those people can do now ever that will uh, make up for that or make uh, they're forever tarred and they should be forever tarred. There's no way back from that. You can't. 
abstain or, or, or vote against a ceasefire when there's a, when there's a genocide going on. But what's quite interesting to me, Ahmed, uh, is um, listening to Hala talk about the British political class, but I've also talked to you a lot about your experiences with the British people and you've been very positive about your like the tragedy that you suffered and you've had a, a, a good experience with the British people, right? The people on the ground, the population rather than the political class. And there's that contradiction between what the politicians are doing and what the people are doing. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Or what you found the British people to be like? Ever since I came to the UK, I have... Um... I have I, I found that the British people are very 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 lovely people very warm people they have supported me countless times so I never had any problem with the British people they I, I love them I love the British people very much my only problem was with the political class of, of Britain unfortunately and we have seen over the past three months that the British people have been rising in a protest against the genocide in Gaza, against the Israeli occupation, against the Israeli apartheid. And they have been very supportive of Palestine. Uh, of course, I'm not talking about 100% of the British people. Not all of them supported Palestine, but I think the majority of them do support Palestine. But there was a huge disparity between the British people and the political class in the UK. And I don't understand why. I don't understand why we have seen in, in London, one of the weekends, over a million people protested in London, only in London, let alone other cities uh, around the UK. Every one of them is saying enough with the Israeli genocide of, of, of Gaza. But that wasn't translated into political action. Well, I, I think because the politicians, they don't care about their, their government. They don't care about their country. They care about their own individual interests. That's the problem. And uh, I've, I've, I've talked with many politicians here in the UK, many MPs, and many of the MPs are actually great. They're amazing people, many, many of them. And uh, let's not uh, forget that uh, in 2014, the British Parliament voted for recognizing the state of Palestine. Of course, this does not force the government to um, to make any action or to recognize Palestine. But many of the MPs, many of the politicians, some of them are actually uh, misinformed about the situation in Palestine. Some of them are ignorant. They don't know what's actually going on in Palestine. But some of them are actually racist. Some of them, they don't care about Palestinian lives. Some of them think the Palestinian lives don't matter, that we are less worthy of the humans, that we are less... Uh, trustworthy of the humans that we always have to uh, in the media also they always want to test our humanity to test our worthiness so th some of the politicians and some of the media personnel are actually racist mm. they are pure sheer racist that do not care about the Palestinians that they hate the Palestinians actually uh, not only the Palestinians but they hate anything that's different from them uh, so yeah some of them are ignorant some of them are racist some of them are well informed and some of them are actually amazing people who are doing amazing work for Palestine it must be quite a bizarre experience for you because you're seeing the best and worst at the same time because <clears throat> yeah as you said there's a lot of amazing activists doing the work but you sent me I can't remember was it like a month ago or so that that interview that you did with Talk TV um it goes to what you're saying about the racism thing like it was the most disgusting thing I've ever seen even worse than the interview recently with Barghouti which was bad but the one they can you just talk a little bit about it might be quite interesting for people to hear about that particular case because it was so bad but also just generally what your experiences with the media have been like because you've gone out and been on all the mainstream shows how have you been treated um, and what do you think that tells us about the, the British media 
Well, some of them were actually not bad because some of them are actually humans who realize that they are interviewing a person who had just lost 21 members of his family, his father, his brothers, his sisters, his nieces and nephews. But some of them, they actually invited me to come to their show, not because they want, they care about me as a person or they care about Palestine or they care about neutrality or professionalism that they want to host people from different sides. They actually interviewed me because they want to embarrass me. They want to ask me they, these uh, difficulty questions so I should, so I, with my answer, I give justification to the murder of my family. And the worst of them was one with Talk TV. And I did a few, I did three interviews with Talk TV. Some, some of the interviewers were good, but one of them was terrible. They, they were terrible to the point that they give a justification for the killing of my family, of my people. And uh, I, I did not actually share this interview because it was useless. It was, I was meeting with people who do not see me as a human, who do not see that my, the life of my, my family matter at all. They say that uh, the international law doesn't matter, that the UN is a spin force, that uh, losing my family is, is collateral damage, that losing my family is collateral damage. And one of them said, asked me, why don't the Palestinians in Gaza revolt against Hamas? I told him, this is not the right question. What if these Palestinians do not rise up against Hamas? Does that is give Israel the justification to carpet bomb Gaza, to kill everyone? And he said, yes. He answered me, yes. So he literally, he literally doesn't care about the lives of, of, of the women, the children, the men. The men, men life is important as well. And he said, just because we don't rise against Hamas, then we deserve to die. All of us deserve to die. And you, you are dealing with these people. So no matter what you say, no matter, no matter how hard your tragedy is, no matter how severe your tragedy is, they don't care about you. They only care about their, their views. They only care about their own interests, individual interests. That's the problem with them. And then they always slap you with this question. Do you think Hamas is a terror organization? Do you condemn Hamas? So wh why do you ask, why do you invite a Palestinian who has lost all of his family and his home and everything he cares about in his home? Then you ask him, do you, con do you, do you condemn Hamas or do you think Hamas is a terrorist organization? Why do you ask me this, this question? So we need to ask these questions ourselves. Why do they ask us this question? I'm not the UN. If I was a person from the UN, you can ask me if I condemn Hamas or not. If I am someone who's, uh, if I am a, uh, a British official or a leader, ask them if they condemn Hamas or not. That would be a legit question. But asking a Palestinian civilian who have lived all of his life under occupation, under siege, who has lost all of his family, why? Do you know why? Because they want to test our humanity. They want to test our worthiness. If we say that we, we, we condemn Hamas, then it's okay. We can, we can be heard. But at the same time, me answering this question in this way would give a justification to Israel to carpet bomb Gaza, to kill everyone, to do whatever they, they desire with the Palestinian people. And if I say I don't condemn Hamas, then I'm uh, less trustworthy, then I am uh, less a human than anyone, and then I shouldn't be interviewed or talked about. And then this will be uh, on the news everywhere uh, where Ahmad did not condemn Hamas, then Ahmad is a terrorist sympathizer and all of that. So we reject the question itself. I am a Palestinian who has lost all of his family, who has lived under occupation, under military occupation. By the way, military occupation is important. 
they don't say military occupation uh, and I shouldn't be asked these questions one of the interviews that was actually a few days after I lost my family and they came to my home I don't want to name it you will all know it and they said don't worry Ahmad we will support you we have psychologists and we will treat you better we have psychologists in the studio when you come we'll take care of you we'll never ask you silly questions then when I came there they asked me if my my uh, my brothers and sisters are close to me they asked me not to start a war of words and hate because I, I disagreed with the social media so these are the kind of questions that we are receiving I would um encourage people to watch that talk tv interview because uh, it takes a lot to shock me these days but i was shocked watching that number one number two your performance was um <laughs> something different i don't know how you kept your composure and you made them look ridiculous that was the beauty of it because the level of depravity that they were coming out with that's when they were talking to someone who had suffered such tragedy was was mind-blogging but but you but you, you fended them off and made them just look ridiculous, which was great. But man, they did not like it. They did not like I know. it. I was, I saw. <laughs> I was smiling to him because I was being respectful, because I yeah. was being nice. And he said, you are smirking and I don't yeah, like I know. that. So, yeah. so I'm not smirking, I'm, I'm smiling to a person. And you know... I don't know many people that wouldn't have just walked out, to be honest. But do you know what, what I hated the most, Matt, which is a very, very hard and sad reality, that when they posted this interview on YouTube, I went to the comments and there were over 3,000 comments. All of them were shouting at me and asking the government to kick me out of this country. So this gives you actually an answer. Why do these uh, hosts are very, very bad with the Palestinians because they appeal to their audience. And I don't blame the audience because this audience has been fed with misinformation their entire life. Uh, this is a sad reality that we need to change. We need to, we need to talk to these people, to tell mm-hmm. them that what you have been fed all of these years is wrong, is false information about what's going on. Mohammed, someone who um, has a diff- sometimes a different uh, attitude. I'm not, say- I'm not saying which way which way is better, but right. you have a different uh, way of dealing with interviewers, which is probably more what I do as well. But um, can you just talk a little bit about because you you've 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 got a kind of unique role in my opinion in 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 the palestine um uh uh, movement and media sort of outreach because you are really really strident you don't take any shit but yet you haven't been locked out of the mainstream yet uh you may be the only one that has that kind of predilection to to speak real hard truths and they still invite you on how does that how how why do you think that's the case and secondly since you've been in the UK, I think you've been here for a month now, you've decided you don't want to do that much media. What's, what's behind that decision? Thank you. I, I, I don't know if I'm the only one that has this approach, and I will say, I think Ahmed's a much better person than me. <laughs> I think it's just like a character. It's just a, ca- a different character trait. Uh, the reason why I've like shied away a little bit from doing interviews in the mainstream media recently, and I, don't, I never get invited back on the same place, any, let's okay. let's say that makes sense. Um, but I, it, it felt like a gimmick, like what Ahmed was describing. And you know, they, they bring you, um, they bring you to to see whether you qualify, even for humanity, right? There, there is these prerequisites. And Ahmed pointed out that we are individual parties. We're not states. We're not diplomats. We're not. We're not. We're not. And when we're not 
uh, we don't have institutional power nor institutional backing, and yet we are not interviewed, we are tried, we are interrogated in, in ways that Israeli politicians are never allowed. In fact, Israeli politicians are allowed not only due diligence, but decency, human decency. But we are, we are not seen as, um, as human beings, and, and the impulse your impulse as Palestinian is to fight, push back against this this bias, right? To present yourself in the most positive light. And through the years, this positive light has shrunk more and more and more. And we're told that there is nothing we can do or say that will present us in a positive light. Even the martyrdom of, of somebody's entire family will not award you innocence on the discussion table. So my approach has been one of like, no, I want to be menacing. I have a right to hatred. Yani, I think I think Ahmed is incredibly generous and graceful that despite everything that has happened to him, has not been able to turn, hasn't transformed sour, hasn't turned sour. When when talking about like the British public, I've been here for like, you know, a month. And I think the British, you know, I can I can sit here and speculate about the British public or the American public, and I can I can make hasty generalizations about how I make, how I think they are rotten, disgusting, racist people at the core. But I don't need to do this, right? I don't need to speculate about what's in people's hearts because their policies tell me exactly whether they're racist or not. How are we treated at the airport? How does UK mainstream media treat uh, treat us? Who who broadcasted the South Africa hearing yesterday? Nobody. But everybody today broadcasted the Israeli defense, the Israeli attempt to, to refute or debunk the, the South African accusations, right? How does uh, the immigration ministries treat Palestinians here? How do police treat Palestinians here at the protests? All of these policies, all of these institutionalized attitudes, tell me everything I need to know about the about the American public, about the British public, and this is what we need to be pushing for. But but the problem is we've we've gotten we've gotten lost into a war of characters where I have and words and, and so on and so forth, where I have to be the most aesthetically platable person. I have to have the right rhetoric. I have to say I don't hate people, blah blah blah. I'm not a government. I hate so many people. You should be grateful I'm not a government. It's like this is what you're saying is like Palestinians are dehumanized so much that there's about six or seven like racist tropes or assumptions that are about them that they have to dispel before they can say anything legitimately. Right. That's the case. It's like, oh well I'm not anti Semitic. I yeah. renounce violence. Like it's like yeah. there's all these assumptions about. I'm not, and I'm not eager to throw myself into what? death. I don't want to. Exactly. I don't want to have sex with 72 virgins. I don't. Yeah. I don't yeah. hate my sister. I don't hate the Jewish people. I don't hate secularism. Is blah, there blah, anyone blah, blah, else blah, 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 blah. on the planet that yeah. has to do that before, in every no. interview? No, no, there isn't. Right. And also, I am of the opinion that like there can be Palestinians who are ignorant, who are misogynistic, who hate secularism, who don't like the West. And that still doesn't make them killable, right? We, yes. we are a tapestry of people and a tapestry of thought, much like the world. But we are told that only Palestinians must be angels, must be perfect, must be infallible in order for them to receive their basic rights. Meanwhile, everywhere else in the world, you can have misogyny and you can have uh, the antidote to that. You can have um, violence and you can have the antidote to that. But with us, we are so exceptionalized because we have been situated outside of humanity. We have been racialized as non-human and we are treated as such. And so when a British journalist across the political spectrum interviews me, 
they never award me any adjectives. They never talk to me with camaraderie or with affinity or nothing. But let's say there's a leftist journalist interviewing uh, an Israeli con conscientious objector. They can call them courageous and brave and amazing, blah, blah, blah. Why? Because they, they opted not to serve three, they opted to serve three months in prison instead of going on a, a killing rampage. Meanwhile, us who have not, yani us who have to stand on the opposite end of the rifle, who have to bear the, sharp, the sharpest, you know, edge of the empire, we are not even allowed yani, a normal conversation on TV. It is merely an interrogation. Yeah, I think that's so that's integral to the dehumanization is that and that's the the game a lot of even the left play. Yeah. They only can afford these uh, adjectives to the positive adjectives towards the Israelis that are conscientious objectors or uh, reject a, a genocide. Mohammed, I just wanted to ask you about what um effect the last 3 months has had on the world because for me as someone who's been in this game of uh politics and foreign policy for like 20 years I, I got politicized by the war in Iraq um which which politicized the whole my whole generation but I think this is different I think watching every day uh this savage genocide uh just hundreds of kids uh killed and maimed and, and mutilated all backed every step of the way by Washington and London it's had an effect on the world that uh, uh, I don't think will ever go away, to be totally honest with you. I think it's an inflection point in world history. The empire has never been more exposed than it is now. They've had to smash the system to get this stuff done. They've had to clearly make it clear to everyone who's not completely indoctrinated or, or, or not completely corpus mentis that the West does not care at all for international law. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. If we want to get something done, it doesn't exist because Israel has advertise their war crimes, advertise their genocide. Even in Iraq, which was uh, an awful crime, the illegal invasion of Iraq, they niced it up with their rhetoric. Tony Blair and George Bush talked about democracy, freedom, human rights. The Israelis haven't done that. Uh, and people are seeing this, and people, uh, and, and people are seeing Washington and London backing it all, and they must be thinking on a sort of generalised, we're talking about millions of people, the world, as I understood it, is not is not how I understood it. The world is different. And that goes not just for the empire, I think that also goes for the media. Because with social media now, you can get the truth uh, from Twitter, Instagram, sometimes, um, when, they're not, when they're not censoring it. But you can get, you can you see the images and then they're reading the mainstream media and seeing that it's been completely warped and uh, the truth is being uh, mutilated as well. Um, and that contradiction is just is so evident everywhere now. And, and as I said earlier, like even people who are not political, my friends of mine, are talking in different ways now. So I just wanted that's a long way of asking the question. Do you think that do you agree with me or not that this is like a, a major turning point in world history in terms of the general consciousness of the world? I think it, this must be a moment of transformation. It has to be. Yani, if this is not a moment for transformation, I do not know what is. We're throwing around this number that 30,000 people were murdered. I mean, a few months ago, a couple months ago, um, I participated in this direct action in front of the New York Times or inside the New York Times where 
people started reading aloud the names of uh, martyrs in Gaza, and we had spent an hour, and we hadn't even gotten to the people who are over a year old. So imagine the magnitude of 30,000 people, and imagine the... I don't know, imagine the the grief, the scope, the scale, yani everyone I know has has lost someone and it has not gone undocumented. Yani yesterday we saw images of a young Palestinian boy picking up the remains of somebody, lumps of flesh from the ground. Yani this is something that that uh, you shouldn't be able to see. This is something you should read about in in grim novels, and it's happening in real time. It's broadcasted, and if the world is not transformed by this, then the world is doomed. I mean, then there is no absolutely there is no hope for humanity, and this is the challenge for for all of us. We must we must we must not we cannot become numb to this. We cannot. I mean, you there is something so terrifying about scrolling on Instagram and scrolling past corpses. That should not be the status quo that it should not be normalized. Um, however, I will say that we are in a unique position because Israel is not necessarily situated outside of the global ecosystem, right? Israel is part and parcel of the empire. We're talking about, you know, people are surprised why the UK is so behind Israel. We know what the UK has done in the north of Ireland. We know what the UK has done um, in India, in Egypt, what has done in the world. You know, we know what the US has done in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Um, these are murderous regimes. Um, but what makes the Israeli state unique is that it, it weaponizes the Jewish faith. And the Jewish faith and the tragedies fallen upon the Jewish people, um, committed against the Jewish people, I should say, have been situated outside of history and have been so exceptionalized that the fear or the potential of a second Holocaust is given more primacy than the actual Holocaust perpetrated today in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere in the world. You know, the genocides that are being committed. And this is what allows Israel to go to the ICJ hearing and say, how dare you invoke the Genocide Convention against us? It was created to protect the Jewish people. Um, and this idea that because they have suffered a genocide, they are incapable of enacting one, is it must be fought fought back against. Yani, uh, we, uh, I can spend my my day, my entire day here, uh, denouncing the Holocaust, denouncing Hitler and Nazism, and denouncing anti-Semitism, and and making the distinction between Zionism and Judaism, and talking about anti-Semitic tropes and blah 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 blah. None of that is relevant, to be honest. There are people being murdered in real time right now, and the death toll is increasing, and we are having abstract, hypothetical discussions about uh, a potential Holocaust that might happen, and yet we are turning a blind eye to, uh, to, the, to the massacres committed in real time. We, we can't be caught in this, because what, what, would we, what we should be focusing on is the material reality on the ground. Um, but we live in a world where the material reality on the ground doesn't matter. What matters is rhetoric, and this is why Yani, not to sound hyperbolic, I am quite grateful for the likes of Benigvir and for the likes of Netanyahu, right? Because, you know, for 75 years, in law, in policy, Jewish life is worth more than my life. 
the life of a Jewish family is worth more than my life. This is enacted in law, right? They have more rights than I do. They have more freedom of movement than I do. And this is business as usual in the world. The second that Itamar ben Gvir went on television and said, sorry, Muhammad, I have more rights than you. My family has more rights than you. That became national headlines. And, and so I, I, I think there is here a moment, there is something to seize if the world is so racist that they do not believe our testimonies, that they do not believe our documentation, that they do not believe the bruises and the wounds and the amputations on our own bodies, that they have to hear it from the horse's mouth. The horse is telling you everything you need to know from the highest um, officials, prime minister, minister of defense, calling us human animals, inciting biblical genocidal verses against us, to the foot soldiers who are videotaping themselves in our homes, on our furniture, in our jewelry, in our clothes, uh, desecrating our, our holy spaces. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, these confessions, these declarations of racism, of genocide, resonate more with the world than the actual act of genocide being committed and being gen uh, televised. I don't have a solution for this, but I know that we must seize this moment. We absolutely, because also, if, if there are 30,000 people who have been killed. And if there is no ceasefire, this is going to continue. If there is this much people who have been killed and yet we are afraid to speak out, we are afraid to demand change, we are afraid to push our bosses, our teachers, our professors, then we have failed all of these martyrs. It's not, they can't just, we can't just put one population of people in a, in a concentration camp and say, you should suffer and everybody else should just watch and mourn. No, it's, it's not fair. My life is not worth more than the lives of people in Gaza. And so I must be a little bit more courageous. And so should my neighbors and so should my friends. Because if we are not transformed by this moment, then nothing will transform us. I mean, and it's not just about Palestine, is it? Because if, these, if this genocide gets normalized, it won't stop with Palestinians. There's other awful regimes in the world and they'll look to the example of Israel and they'll look, they'll say, they'll see that international law has no impact on them and they'll, and they'll act accordingly. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the other thing that's quite interesting is you talked about the mask is off effectively Zionism now, and which is helpful, right? There's no, there's no way of really sugarcoating what the, the, these guys are saying now, whereas there was before. And I think it also goes to the empire because all the different pressure points of empire having to be activated to get this done as well. Or one case, which is a story I've been looking at, has been how the UK's bases on Cyprus have been used to supply Israel with weapons by the US and Brits are doing daily flights there. Nearly no one I know, even before this story, it's actually become a massive scandal in Cyprus now. Both uh, presidents on both sides of the border have, have talked about it. The UK High Commission in Nicosia has had to make a statement. It's like there's a massive protest on Sunday actually at the base. But nearly everyone I know, none of them would know that we even had bases on Cyprus that we retained after 1960 when it got independence. It wasn't, it didn't get independence. But it's interesting, like across the board, they've had to all these different pressure points. And then you've got Yemen, which they bombed last night. And people were just sort of like, what? We're, they they're the ones the, the one uh power that actually stood up to, to try and stop the genocide and they're now getting bombed by the us and the uk i mean how it's so obvious there's no way to propagand even propagandize that um and then another element of it i, I think that where a massive sort of paradigm change has happened is it's revealed that we do not live in democracies especially on foreign policy 
Like if you look who who's in the White House, it's a Democrat, Joe Biden. Uh, he's the, just completely pro-genocide, uh, completely discounted international law, has given more and more arms as they've broken more and more laws. Um, then uh, you've got the Republicans who are, e who are equally as bad. Here you've got the Tories who are backing it to the to the hill, and you've got Labour backing it to the hill. There is no democracy. There's no democracy. It's so clear, and that that does kind of exist on domestic policy, but it's even more on foreign policy. I think that's a re that's that's another realization that people are making that is not going to go away. Um, Ahmed, I wanted to ask you a different question. Actually, it would be good for you to talk a little bit about we are not numbers because that is um, uh, uh, a a victory for the human spirit in the face of some of the darkest forces in the world, like uh, uh, establishing that organization, which the story, well, I'll let you tell the story. Setting up We Are Not Numbers was very similar to what's happening now. It was in, in the year 2014 when Israel launched its aggression in Gaza. And in that war, I lost my brother and many of my friends. And back then I was only 19 years old. Uh, I wasn't uh, composed as now. I was very young. I was very depressed from everything that's going around me. But uh, during times of war in Gaza, we would always find solace and, uh, and calm when we are gathered, me and my friends and my brother and family. We'd always meet up, gather around uh, a dish of jelly uh, or cake or whatever and then we would just try to forget about the horrors that happen outside but then one day I lost my brother in that war and many of my friends and this brother Ayman he was very close to me we were uh, he was three years or four years older than me but we always would spend our time together he used to be like a mentor to me you know, the older brother and the younger, he was always protective of me, would always go out, spend our time together. He was very special to me. He was very close to me. And then out of nowhere, Israel bombed him. He, he was killed and many of my friends. And they felt very depressed, even way more than ever before. And during that war, uh, the only idea would that would consume me is that I, I don't love this life anymore. I don't want to live anymore. It's, it's useless, it's all in vain, you know, darkness. I wouldn't say darkness, it's depression, you know, like depression. And then one of my friends, an American journalist, uh, her name is Pam, she reached out to me and she, she heard about my brother and she, she asked me, Ahmed, uh, how are you? How do you feel? I told her I'm fine. She said, no, tell me something real. Told her I'm depressed. What can I tell you? I'm depressed. And when I'm all alone, I go out to the graveyard. When I'm all alone, I burst out crying. She told me, write something about it. And that idea came to me, of course. Why would I write about it? Why would I write about my brother? The Western media, and she wanted me to write in English for the media. And I said, you Westerners, you don't care about us. You see all of us as terrorists. That my father does, and my brother doesn't matter. That as, as my Canadian friend told me that, told me that most Canadians think of Gaza as uh, a, uh, a place full of rubble and terrorists live under the rubble. That's, that's how they view us. That's the ambition I had. So I never believed in, in the power of storytelling. I never thought that writing for the West is a good idea. But she insisted. 
Well, she she's much older than me, so you know, in Gaza we always respect the older people. <laughs> no, so I said, okay, she's older than me. She asked me something. I I will not say no to her, not because I believe that uh, this is important or it will help me. Yeah, it's wajib. It's a duty that we have to do. Respect the older people. That's it. I'm older she, than she's, you. She's I'm older than you. you she's into very old, but me. she's older than me, you know. <laughs> and I said, okay, I will write this for you. So I wrote something, uh, and in one hour or two, I, I wrote about my brother, about uh, how I was attached to him and how he was killed, and how I feel about it. And then my English was very shaky. It was very, very bad. So she helped me edit the language, the uh, the English grammar and the run-on sentences. That's our common <laughs> mistake in Gaza when you write in English. Run-on sentences, right, Muhammad? <laughs> so, and then she published the story. So for the first time in my life, I realized that something is different. My story got told in English. People read my story, people from the West. And you know, back then I was in Gaza. I never left Gaza before. So people reached out to me. She told me, Ahmed, we read your story and we're sorry for you. And we are moved by your story. Please keep on writing. So for a 19 year old person receiving messages of support and sympathy uh, from people who you had lost hope in, it's a game changer. So I, for the first time I felt better. I felt like, yes, if we write our stories, these people can change. We can do a difference. But most importantly, for me, writing about my story, writing about myself and having it read by others was some sort of stress release for me. Mm. Because it's the worst thing ever when you suffer and you suffer in silence and no one would hear about you or listen to you and you are just in limbo. That's that's very, very terrible feeling. And then because I felt slightly better, we came up with this idea. Why don't we replicate what happened with me with many other Palestinians? Why don't we train writers from Gaza to write their stories in English through pairing them with international mentors to help them write their stories? And that's how the idea of We Are Not Numbers came up. And the reason why we called it We Are Not Numbers because the Western media thinks of us as numbers. Mm -hmm. So now we were talking about 30,000 Palestinian people killed. Just a number. 30,000. It's a sister of 40,000. 100,000. Just a number. But these people don't know that behind these numbers is stories that deserve to be told. Behind every number, there is a, a story of, of a dream, of a family, of a father, of a brother. And these people deserve to be told. Their stories deserve to be told and they deserve to be immortalized because through writing and through storytelling, we immortalize our heroes. So that's that's how we came up with We Are Not Numbers and I've been leading uh, We Are Not Numbers ever since. It's inspiring, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. So yes. this is uh, not to be too sentimental, but like um, one of the one of the major things that I've taken away from like the last three months when I've got to know quite a lot of people from Gaza is like, and this is going to sound sentimental, but Palestinians are the most dehumanized people on the planet, but they're also the most human, and that is true. That's how I felt. I like talking, like getting to know you, Ahmed, and listening to that story. I'm like, wow, I've never met people who have such like noble ideals and and dedication to 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 this kind we don't have it here like the kids that me the kids I grow up we don't have that kind of um way of looking at the world I was going to ask you Hala about um 
so this has all been very depressing and it is it all it is all very depressing but there was a ray of hope like this week with the icj um uh, case against israel which was the first time really in in global they've been put in a dot globally um the world's eyes were on that 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 hearing um what did it feel like uh as someone from gaza who's endured the last three months uh watching did you watch the the south africa case yes. presented what, what was it like um watching south africa case was at the beginning hopeful because it's the first time in 75 years that a country like a real country have stood in front of the world and said something against Israel, which is very like, we, we, ha we haven't seen that. Although at the same time, like I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very grateful to South Africa. I'm very proud of them because I know that's very, very difficult. When, when Yemeni or Yemen have like stopped the ships from reaching to Israel, they've been bombarded by UK and South uh, and um, USA combined so by just standing and asking for international justice by the icg that wouldn't pass lightly on israel and its allies so south africa knows how hard is that and at the same time they've they've done it so i'm so proud i'm so happy of them and this is like the first time in history i felt we have someone in our back i'm not talking about the common people we always had like people, like the numbers grow in the last uh, t um, 100 days, but like a government, a country, that's new. And it's, uh, it was expected and celebrated to be South Africa because they are the other country that had colonizers inside it, UK, British colonizers, and they were able to celebrate their liberation from them. So it's expected that this country would be carrying the flag of justice in the international justice. However, at the same time, knowing the complicity of the world, knowing the complicity of the UN system, uh, which was built um, in, in a structure that literally racist. Five most powerful countries are controlling everything in the world by raising the veto. Uh, for example, the US in our, in our case. So although I might imagine that in the best scenario with the um, partiality and also the um, uh, the bias of some of the court members they in the best scenario could pass a ceasefire and all of that and that there is some uh, possibility of a genocide in gaza but when it would go to the un council i don't believe that usa wouldn't raise their hand for a veto to protect israel again i just like uh, you your whole family is is in gaza right what has the last three months been like and how how are you feeling now okay i'll try not to be emotional um okay since the first day of this genocide i tried my best to go back to gaza to be with my family because in each aggression um which in the last six aggressions israel like killed seven thousand palestinian i was very afraid on my family and being away of them and there is something like we Palestinians, because of the Israeli occupation, we don't control so many things in our lives. 
but within aggressions there is very few decisions that you can make and feel a little bit that you have a little bit of control over your life and among those decisions that people in Gaza used to, to make up to my experience they divide to two groups when a group usually decide to, within the aggression to stay together in one place so if they were killed they will be killed together and no one will stay to mourn the rest of the family the second group is the group that would divide themselves to like each group in a certain place. So with statistics, if they were bombarded, then a, a little bit of the family would survive. I was from the first group, so we used to stay together. Something happened would happen to all of us. If we survived, it would be all of us. And like shockingly, I lost this privilege by being isol isolated in the UK. And since the first day, it was like it was a hell, shocking hell for people who witnessed 75 years of genocide, starting from 1947, Nakba, and even before that and after that. And recalling what my father told me once in one of the, of the phone calls, Hala, I had my grandfather suffering all of his life because of the Israeli occupation. I had my father suffering all of his life and dying early because of the occupation. I was raised as orphan since I was six and I had suffered a lot. And then we, myself and your mom, decided to go to another country to raise money and own a home. So we make sure or at least try to give you and your siblings a better life. And now I am suffering himself and my mother and your siblings are suffering. Our home is bombed, totally demolished, and my own grandchildren are suffering, and I can't protect them. Five generations of us have suffered in the 75 years. Why? And why it's still happening? No one understands. The rest of the days go on, and each day, I at least, like, I, I can't, I, I count like a, a friend of mine who's killed, or a relative, not one, 15, 20, those are like the numbers daily. And when you start thinking about your relationship with this, with this friend, you just realize that another one is killed and you have to pay attention to that. And then the other one, and you can never mourn on any of them. You don't have the time and the privilege for that. Everything on me is related to a loss. This glasses, is made by Khurshid company in, in Gaza. It's a very famous company that do uh, optical stuff. They have so many branches. I made it just before coming here. And all the family, all Khurshid family, is wiped off now in this genocide. This one is made by Palestinian women who have been working in something called so the safety house. It's a governmental uh, home uh, established in 2011 to protect battered women and young girls and keep them at this shelter and like rehabilitate them, um, teach them empowerment stuff and economic stuff to, to be in better position and then have a solution to them and go back to the community in the best possible way. And this was created by one of them. This, um, it, wasn't a it was created by one of the survivors at the house. 
by training of uh, a woman, a very lovely woman called Im Sbah, who spent multiple days and nights there to take care of those women and young girls, leaving her own family. And yesterday, I knew that she was killed. Like, I, I can't look at myself. Uh, I can't look at my ring. My husband is in Gaza. I can't even be with him. I don't know the amount of suffering he's suffering from. I remember my engagement party, or like my, my marriage, it was a traditional wedding, very beautiful one. The people who photo-taped my wedding is our beloved friend, Rushd Sarraj, a journalist, and his beautiful wife, Shirouk. They're good friends of mine and my husband, very dear friends. They attended our wedding and we attended their wedding. They just got married four days after us. And they had that little beautiful girl and they were in Umrah uh, when the genocide started. However, they, uh, and they had one wish that their daughter would never be an orphan because her mother, my friend Shuru, was raised as an orphan, no father, no mother. And they had only one wish that she, was, she wouldn't be raised an orphan. The house of uh, Rushdi Saraj was bombed or targeted and Rushdi was killed. So even when I look at the memories, our beautiful memories for me and my husband, my family, I cannot erase the, the idea that the beautiful souls, Rushdi and, and, and Shuru were there to celebrate us and videotape that for us and that he was killed. So it's not just our entire like life now is, is full of tragedy and genocide, but even our beautiful memories, they have literally taken and eradicated the people we loved all over our lives. And I can't, I can't imagine what's coming next. I can't imagine it at all. I have all my friends in Gaza, all of them, female friends, all of them either killed or widowed and have their own children orphans. I am so afraid of facing the same reality as they are. And I'm at the same time feeling guilty of fearing that reality. And this is the type of cares that Israel creates for the Palestinians. You cannot seek happiness because you will, you will feel guilty and you cannot be happy because they will kill you or kill your beloved people before you feel happiness. So the last few, like not a few, it, it, it felt more than all of my life. I, don't, I can't even remember what I do. I do, I do remember how beautiful it was before, before this tragedy. It wasn't the first one, but in each time we were able to stand stronger and rebuild Gaza and rebuild ourselves and cry on the people we loved. We used to have um, mournings on our beloved people, which was denied in this time. People are being killed, buried in mass graves, and no one's there to pray on them. And no one's there around their own family to pay them condolences, to walk with them in demonstrations of the killed people, the martyrs, the, and, and to feel that solidarity of the thousands of the community walking with you, running and calling for the shaheed, for the martyr that was killed. That all of that was denied for us, taken from us. And, and I can't imagine how the children 
who faced all of that are now feeling. I know that the international community, many of the public, are standing with the people, but at the same time, many are celebrating the resilience of the Palestinians, which I'm not talking about all the Palestinians, I'm talking about myself. I don't accept resilience. We are not resilient at all. We are victims and we don't have anyone by our backs but ourselves. And how can I explain that is by eight years old child, a boy, that a colleague of mine told me his story. My colleague works as a, as a anesthetologist in, in a hospital. And a child came, eight years old, and two other children, brother and sister, five and four. And he was treating them, treating the child, eight years old, and the child told him to, to come closer. And when he came, he um, said in the ear of the doctor, please don't tell my brother and sister that my parents were killed. I saw them, I know that both are killed, but they wouldn't withstand the trauma. Eight years old child is raising beyond his age to become suddenly a parent to his own younger sibling is not because he's resilient. It's because he knows that he has no one with him. And this is the reality that Palestinians are growing through it. And that's why our community is a very lovable community. It's sharing and sharing everything with the people, with the Palestinians around it and the suffering and all of that. That's why my family now, like sheltered for more than 10 times now, they are now with other families, five families in a room. Many of the neighbors in the, in the um, building, no one knew the others in the last, like before 100 day. Now they are living each single day, minute, and second together with lack of privacy, lack of everything, lack of food, lack of water, but they share. They share love, they share protection, although they can't even find it. This is how beautiful people in Gaza are, and this is how hard and cursed our reality is, not because we're cursed, because Israel have designed that for us. And today, when I was in Gaza, I was doing my field work. Um, I am like mainly a women rights activist, but I am activist for anyone who's oppressed. Doesn't matter, women, men, and children. And, and it was for like, my research was about Palestinian women at the intersection of colonial and patriarchal violence. And one of the theories I'm studying, um, I was under colonial violence. I was seeing women, men, children as the other gender. So there's the gender of Israel, gender of Palestinians. Those are oppressed, oppressors, and those are oppressed. In my research, I was trying to understand um, the pattern of domestic violence services provided and all of that. However, after that, we did something in Gaza that was never done in any place in the world, which was to go in the community, do public dialogues and speakings with like normal people and decision makers to discuss with them the reality of battered women, children, and all of that. And after that, to ask them to come together as a community to combat domestic violence, which they did. More than th 300 Palestinians, women, men, religious figures, traditional figures, decision makers, police officers, people at organizations, 
and women and men, families, parents, they came and they together created three action groups to combat domestic violence. Two were legal action groups and one was for raising awareness. And that was totally voluntary. People were coming together with the decision makers to combat domestic violence. And I left them after I was sure that there is 25 volunteering leaders to lead this change. And I would just have to follow up with them. And I came here with a flourishing society, developing society, progressing society that did something the world have never done to come together, all the society to combat domestic violence. Seven days later, the places we worked in are demolished. The people I worked and volunteered with, families, parents, decision makers, are killed. Today, one of the leaders in the action groups called me. He told me, Hala, I have all my dreams killed and demolished. My sister had lost all of her kids. My father and mother are killed and I can't contact any of them. They're in the north of Gaza. I know nothing about them. We have been building to have a better future for us. Now we don't even feel that we have a life to live in front of us.